This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello. Dr. Beal, it's Jonathan Master calling. Good to uh, chat with you when uh, everything's going well with you. It is, it is. And with you? Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Our guest today is Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Westminster Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. He has written a a number of volumes and articles, including a a commentary on the Book of Revelation and, and many, many other things on the subject of eschatology. So I think it's appropriate that we speak to him today about this subject, the subject of eschatology. Dr. Greg Beal, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. So let's start with just a definition. What is eschatology? Well, eschatology comes from a Greek word, eschatos, which means last. And so eschatology traditionally has been uh, understood to be, when you, when you add the ology to it, it means the study of the last things. And most have understood that in the history of the tradition of the church to be about the last future things, the, the things to happen last in history. The end times, and, as it's sometimes End called. times, right. And then many evangelicals use that phrase, latter days or end times. They're, they're really talking about current events often. That They say, hey, things are shaping up. It looks like the latter days are almost here and the final coming of Christ. And hey, they're going to build the temple in Jerusalem and so forth and so on. And so, uh, but, but actually... Um, I, I had uh, what, what I would call a uh, mind-blowing experience early in my um, student uh, days, uh, soon thereafter, um, when I got a concordance and I started looking at the word eschatos in the New Testament and looking at it in the phrase, you know, uh, latter days. And synonymous phrases like last hour, end of the ages, mm-hmm. um, Etc. Etc. And to my surprise, most of them were not referring exclusively to the latter days, but focusing on how the latter days had begun in the coming of Jesus and were continuing in the early New Testament church, uh, uh, in the churches founded by Paul uh, and others. And and so um, I began to have a reorientation that eschatology is not just futurology, well, yes, it is, of course, but actually eschatology from the apostolic viewpoint and Christ's viewpoint began at the first coming because that's when the end of the ages began, when Christ came. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to come in the end times. He came, they begin, and so uh, they continue and they will be consummated when Jesus returns and then establishes a new heaven's and a new earth. Um, of course, there's debate about what will happen when he returns. Uh, that would have to be another topic for another time. But um, uh, so we, we call this in New Testament uh, theology and New Testament studies the already and not yet conception of the end times. And I would go so far as to say that this is such an important conception that the apostles. Uh, really, whenever they expressed any of their major ideas, they expressed it through the lens 
of the latter days. Every doctrine is soaked with uh, a latter-day uh, ideology. They breathe the breath of, uh, of the latter days. And uh, so I wrote a book uh, called A New Testament Biblical Theology in which I try to work this out and uh, show how this was prepared for in the Old Testament and then how um, it's worked out. In fact, the subtitle of that book is The Unfolding of the Old Testament in the New. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that unfolding aspect because it strikes me that uh, one could, could argue, okay, yes, the New Testament writers thought they were in the last days, and, and they were wrong because here we are two 2,000 years later. But that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is, no, there, there's continuity here. They've, uh, they've understood the Old Testament expectation, and they see how they themselves, and particularly on the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, are, are, are living in many of the things that the Old Testament pointed towards. Is, is, that, is that a fair... Um, yes, yeah, well, it is interesting. If you read some of the non-evangelical scholars um, um, on, on some of the texts, like like 1 John 2, 18, where he says, My little children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, I tell you many Antichrists have already come from this, we know it is the last hour. And so someone like Raymond Brown, for example, would say, obviously John was wrong, Right. Uh, it wasn't the end. Christ did not come back. The Antichrist did not come. So forth and so on. And uh, so there are some that that would say it's absurd to think that we're continuing to be in the latter days. But here one has to um, uh, think very carefully. For example, uh, uh, the word mystery is used in the New Testament, and and it's used sometimes in connection with the time element in the fulfillment of the kingdom. For example, you remember in Matthew 13, Jesus says to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to those outside it's not been granted. And what he does is he begins to talk about the unexpected beginning fulfillment of the kingdom. Uh, and one of his unexpected parables that he gives, they're all parables of unexpectedness, um, is about the mustard seed, and uh, uh, how it's planted, and it grows, and uh, obviously part of the nature of it is that it doesn't, you know, all of a sudden become a tree. Um, and so when the kingdom comes, you don't all of a sudden see the kingdom wham blat, as would appear perhaps, perhaps from uh, certain glances of the Old Testament, the fact that when the kingdom would come, it's completely all here. But in fact, there's a process. And um, how long is that process? Well, we don't know. The apostles didn't know. Some would say, well, now it couldn't be 2,000 years. But um, God is sovereign over time, and we are not. And this is part of the mystery. It's unexpected. That is, the kingdom growth. Uh, when the kingdom comes, it's not going to be all consummated immediately when it first comes. There's going to be a growth. And in fact, this phrase, mysteries of the kingdom, comes out of Daniel 2. Mm -hmm. And what's intriguing about Daniel 2, you already see the seed form of a growth of the kingdom there, where in Daniel 2, a stone cut without hands um, smites the statue that represents the evil kingdoms of the world, and it's identified as the kingdom of God, this stone is, and then it says that it grows, and it fills the whole earth. Well, that phrase, filling the earth, is from Genesis 128. 
And uh, if one understands it, Adam and Eve and their progeny were not going to fill the earth in one day. Um, right. It was going to take a while. Right. So you already see the sea. In other words, this is not a brand new revelation. Process is it, already built into it. You've already got seeds of it. B.B. Warfield explained it this way, that the Old Testament, in comparison to the New, the Old Testament is like a room with furniture in it, and the lights are so low you can't make out exactly you know, the fabric on the furniture, the exact contours of the furniture, etc. But you can tell it's furniture and maybe some of the shapes. The New Testament turns the lights on, and you can see everything much more clearly. And I think when the New Testament writers say that Christ has, has that the mystery now has been revealed in Christ, that it's not like this is something you can't find at all in the old, but as Gerhardus Voss said, you know, it's in seed form in the old, and you know, you get the beginning of the apple tree and the new and the full fruit at his final coming. So I want to talk a little bit about some of that furniture. Uh, when when we come to the prophetic and or eschatological passages in the Old Testament, but really also in the New as well, uh, there tends to be a great deal of symbolic material, and metaphors and pictures and strange beasts. And so so mm-hmm. how do we go about sorting out the meaning of these things? I think a lot of Christians come to these passages and either come up with uh, all kinds of strange interpretations, or or just throw up their hands. So so, how do you go about tackling those things? Well, it's not easy. Um, you uh, first of all um, try to understand what's going on in the context. And um, for example, with the four kingdoms, the four sections of the. Uh, a statue in um, Daniel 2, many have compared that with the four beasts of Daniel 7. And um, But some have identified them as different kingdoms, uh, in, in, especially in Daniel chapter 2. Um, I think probably Daniel 7 is the more controlling paradigm where I think it's a little easier to uh, identify them. But it's very clear there that beasts, regardless of how they're identified, beasts represent kingdoms, because the text goes on and says that the beasts represent kings and kingdoms. Um, So um, what you try to do is look for um, an explanation of the the symbols. Now, sometimes you may not get those. Um, For example, in the book of Revelation, Mm -hmm. uh, you get a lot of symbols there, and uh, most of them are not explained. Some are. I wish all of them were, because then our commentaries would be a lot shorter on the book of Revelation. But most are not explained. So in the book of Revelation, what do you do? Well, you go back. Most of those images, 95%, at least of them, are based on Old Testament pictures and images, where in the context it is pretty clear what they mean. Now, if you're in an Old Testament text... Um, and you're trying to figure out what a parable or a symbol means, one ought to be aware that um, sometimes those come from even earlier in the Old Testament. And so you go back earlier in the Old Testament. Um, sometimes uh, you've just go, got to go by the immediate or broad context of the book, and, and, and sometimes it's just difficult. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we have to but certainly, leave it with that, I think. But certainly at the outset, we should do our best to see if there are 
other places where it's explained or other places where it's a- unpacked differently, either before the passage in question or mm-hmm. or after yeah. in a late in a later yeah. text. And, and and one helpful thing can be, and and some readers um, might not be as interested in this, but sometimes it can be helpful, and that is to look at early Jewish commentaries on different Old Testament passages, especially ones with symbols. Um, early Jewish, some would say, well, why look at that? They weren't Christians. Well, um, uh, early early Jewish commentators before the time of Christ, uh, you know, sort of like some people who don't think uh, there were any believers until the Reformation. Well, there were in the Catholic Church, and so there were believers in Judaism before the coming of Christ. And, and um, some of these commentaries uh, that comment on the Old Testament are good, some of them are off the wall, just like modern commentaries. Mm-hmm. Some are good, mm-hmm. some are off the wall. So sometimes you can get some hints from some of these early Jewish commentaries, and that's why I have that chapter in my handbook on New Testament use of the old on how to find where Jewish sources, uh, especially early ones, refer to certain Old Testament passages. So, um, you know, I think ultimately the reformational and hermeneutical principle of let Scripture interpret Scripture right. is very helpful. Because especially in the Old Testament, for example, maybe we're unsure from the Old Testament context. What does this mean? Well, look at does the New Testament refer to this? And it may, and it, it may give an interpretation of that symbol that is not so clear in the Old Testament. And I would say that we need to listen to the apostolic authoritative interpretation. Sure. Uh, sure. One one example of this is in um, Ezekiel 40 to 48, which pictures a a, a temple that, that dominates a city. It's almost a city temple, especially as Qumran understood it in their temple scroll. And and so is this a literal temple to come? That is an architectural temple to be built that dominates Jerusalem, um, or is it symbolic? Well. Revelation 21, and verses uh, all the way, really, up to 22.3, is soaked with the Old Testament, and it says also, one of the passages it's soaked with is, guess what, Ezekiel 40-48. And John does not interpret the temple there as a specific architectural, uh, that is, literal building, but as actually the whole new heavens and earth. And uh, so there, I think we have an authoritative interpretation uh, of a reality that's to occur in the new heavens and earth. That is uh, a temple uh, from Ezekiel, but the temple now is the whole earth where God dwells. So many times it's just a matter of continuing to read on and 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 look for how the Bible interprets itself. In, in, in other words, yeah, you know, uh, let Scripture interpret Scripture. That that is, I think, one of the, I found that to be, in fact, that's how, I mean, there are a lot of ways to do biblical theology. Uh, one of them is to trace themes, and that's still a very good way to do it. Uh, for myself, what I have found is that people have not done biblical theology on the basis of a, a literary basis, of looking at very important phrases earlier in the Old Testament, and then how they're repeated and expanded and interpreted in the old, and how they continue to be expanded and interpreted and developed in the new. And so that's, I mean, Genesis 1, uh, 28 is a beautiful example of that. I, I already know of two Ph.D. dissertations on the use of Genesis 1, 28 in the Old Testament alone. And so there's more to be done. 
So let me end with this question then. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that you've also given us some some book recommendations. You, you mentioned your own handbook, and I would commend that to our listeners as well. But, but I wonder if you could just summarize. You brought up at the beginning the idea that, in a sense, we are living in the last days now, um, and mm-hmm. this is part of the New Testament writer's understanding of our mm-hmm. place as Christians today. So could mm-hmm. you expand just very briefly on on why that is so important, not just as a hermeneutical issue for understanding the Old Testament and for understanding eschatology, but but as a, as a kind of on-the-ground issue for understanding ourselves as Christians today. Why is that an important perspective for us to really grab a hold of clearly? Well, Second Corinthians 5 says that um, Christ died, we died, he rose, and we're identified with his resurrection. Uh, that's verses 14 to 15. And then very quickly in uh, verse 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. Now, if you look at that wording carefully, it's based on Isaiah 43, 19, and Isaiah 65, 17. And those are texts, prophecies about the new creation. And um, what uh, Paul is doing there is saying that when people become believers, they are not like a new creation. They are actually beginning to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah's new creation. By the way, that this is the case is apparent from a number of other prophecies that are quoted, and then in chapter 7 of verse 1, Paul summarizes and said, therefore having these promises, and uh, so he sees all these as promises, beginning fulfillment, not consummated, but beginning. And so what, what does it mean that a Christian is really a new creation? Well, what it means is that uh, in their regeneration in this age, um, uh, their body is not yet redeemed, but uh, their spirit has been regenerated, not perfected, but it's been regenerated, and they are a new creation in, in, in their spirit. That will be followed up consummately with the body catching up, and we'll have uh, a consummated spirit and body in the new heavens and earth. But for now, we're a new creation. And Paul will again and again use that fact that people may have heard of the indicative and the imperative. Paul will say, because you're a new creation, you have the power to overcome sin in your life. And um, uh, there's a real psychological perspective on this. Uh, When we feel that we're being defeated by sin, I think we need to remember who we are in Christ. We really are in the resurrected Christ. We really are resurrected beings. How do we inhabit the final new heavens and earth with a resurrected body? Well, we've begun to be resurrected in the Spirit now. It's a literal resurrection. When Daniel 12 predicted resurrection, he wasn't just predicting physical, but spiritual too, the whole person. And the way that's fulfilled is staggered. First spirit, then the body. And so we are new creation, and um, we we should be motivated to want to conquer sin in our lives because we're not dead in sin. We are indeed a new creation, though the shadow of sin still hangs over us, and we will not be perfected until Christ comes. It's a little bit like my neighbor when I lived in Illinois. My neighbor, um, uh, whenever it would snow, he would be right out uh, with his new snowblower clearing his driveway. Uh, for me, however, I had an old rusty snow shovel, and I, you know, it had to snow quite a lot 
for me to finally get out there because I had no motivation to get out there because I, I, I didn't have you know the power. He had all the power in the world. And finally, when the command came suddenly from my wife, hey, how are we going to get out of the driveway tomorrow? I'd pull myself up and try it about 12 midnight perhaps to clear the driveway. Well, what's the difference between my neighbor and me? He's got all this motivation. He's right out there after an inch of snow. <clears throat> it's because he's got the power. <clears throat> and um, we have that power. And it's a moral power in Christ, a spiritual power to overcome sin. And, um, and and we can have that confidence that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, and, and that can drag us down. We There may be times in which we are partially captivated by sin, but God has promised that we will overcome that because he's began that good work of new creation in us and given us that power. And we need to soak ourselves with his word and the promises of that word to remember these things. Uh, one person has put it this way, um, that um, forgetfulness breeds idolatry, but remembering breeds faithfulness. Forgetfulness of God's word breeds idolatry, but remembering it breeds faithfulness. And I think that's very important. Well, I can't think of a much better note to end on than that. And so, Dr. Bio, we thank you for your time discussing eschatology um, and and really appreciate you coming on to share with us. Is this the eschatos of our conversation? Well, maybe we've been in the eschatos the whole time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.